David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may even know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And skipping down to verse um, 8. So when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now night <laughs> looking like coming together and worshiping together with just the body of Christ worshiping you seemed impossible and just crying out Lord we want to worship you you deserve praise and you are in control of weather and Lord I just want to praise you I feel like you answered my prayer and probably many prayers of the saints in this city who desired a place to worship, and you just move the snow. God, and you deserve our praise. You deserve our worship. And Father, I just pray that you'd use this word, search out our hearts, Lord. You desire worship from pure hearts, Lord. So I pray that you'd use this word as we enter 2024, just to purify our hearts, Lord. God, to set aside anything that is not of you, that we might be fully prepared for the great things you want to do in this year. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, here we are in 2 Samuel. <clears throat> you know, you may be curious, how, how do people, how do different teachers pick what they're going to teach for uh, for Pastor Steve, of course, he's teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so usually he just picks up at the next verse unless the Lord tells him otherwise. But for those of us who fill in, you know, there's a process of seeking the Lord for a word, and most of the time I have kind of a pretty clear impression what the Lord wants me to teach on, um, often weeks ahead, even sometimes before I'm asked. I just have a sense that God wants me to teach on a particular subject. But this particular time, it was actually more difficult, and I was actually getting a little nervous, because normally I just know ahead of time, and I can already start to kind of prepare in my heart what I'm going to say, because I already know the passage, and I already kind of know the basic thing that the Lord wants to say. But this time, it took me a little longer, and it was about 10 days ago, I would say, that um, God just kind of led me to this passage. I had different ideas I was going to teach on, and 
I just really feel like he wanted me to speak on this passage. So I just want to put that out there as, as we step into this passage. Um, and perhaps in 2024, this is, this is the time to do business. The Lord wants to deal with something. So here we are, verse, verse one of chapter 24. It says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. So this phrase, the anger of the Lord here, is I would say in the context designed to connect what's happening in this story at the end of David's reign as king with really the entire history of the nation of the Jewish people since the time they'd been freed from slavery out of Egypt by Moses. You may recall that God had let them out of Egypt and he was bringing them into the land of promise that was promised to their forefather Abraham. And you may recall on the journey to the promised land that the people feared for their children, giving that the land of promise that God had sworn to them was filled with giants. And even though this is the generation that had walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, God himself parting it on the left and on the right, even though they'd seen God's mighty hand, they doubted God. And so in Numbers chapter 32, in verse 13, it says, the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And after that generation die, died, Joshua led the people victoriously into the land of promise, and before his death, he warned the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 23 and verse 16, when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. And if you know your Old Testament history, the next book after Joshua is the book of Judges, and we see the fulfillment of Joshua's words here where the Israelites repeatedly play out the cycle of going and serving other gods, arousing the anger and jealousy of the true God, only to be given over to their enemies. And then after suffering at the hand of their enemies, they repent and God brings deliverance through a judge. You're familiar with many of the names of them, Gideon, Samson, and so on. But throughout the book of Judges, the cycle of sin, defeat, repentance, deliverance, plays out over and over and over and over. And in Judges chapter 10 and verse 7, it says, so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. Now under the last judge of Israel, which was the prophet Samuel, the people cry out for a king. And why? Because they want to be like the other nations thinking that if they had a king like the other nations, then we would no longer have to live in the fear and threat of these other enemies coming and attacking us. So Samuel gives them Saul, and yet we find the nation still being oppressed by their enemies, the Philistines, in particular by a Philistine giant named Goliath. And so many of you know the story well. David enters the story as a, a young, probably teenage boy, and he shows 
Saul and all the armies of Israel how just a boy with faith and a few stones can deliver an entire nation out of defeat and into the glorious victory that God had planned for them. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 40, sounded so strange to the leaders at the time, but this is what David did. It says, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near the Philistine. It's sad really when we think about what's happened to David as he began his ministry, just being able to put together five stones was really enough to go against the giant. It's all he needed. But now he desires to count all the people of Israel. And by implication, he wants to know how big is my army? How is it that God stopped being enough for David? such that his confidence now rests in the size of his army rather than the size of his God. And it would appear from our passage in 2 Samuel 24 that it wasn't just David, but it was the entire nation that began backsliding in their hearts as all the generations of their forefathers had done before them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And in fact, one of the early signs that you are backsliding is a lack of confidence in God. And so as we just read in 2 Samuel 24.10, after David had numbered the people, he realized and he said that his heart condemned him. But the early warning sign was that lack of confidence in God. So back to verse one. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So question for you. Did God tempt David to sin? Yes or no? Correct. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, there's a parallel passage in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, which sheds some light on the story. In this passage, it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel, and move David to number Israel. And so David said to Joab and the leaders of the people, go and number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Hmm. Do these passages contradict each other? Was it God or was it Satan that moved David to number of the people of Israel? Well, once again, the answer is no, it's not a contradiction. Instead, these passages together teach us a theme throughout Scripture where we learn about, and that will be the much of the topic of this particular message, we learn about the nature of God, the believer, the devil, and sin. 
So while God does not tempt us, he does at times prevent or permit the devil to tempt us and do us harm. For those of you who are students of the Old Testament, you'll remember that God has used many pagan foreign nations to test and discipline his people. Now, we just discussed in the context of David the story of the Philistines, how God was using this a pagan Philistine nation who was far more sinful than Israel to punish their backsliding throughout the period of the judges. But later in Israel's history, God would also use other nations. He would use the Assyrians. He would use the Babylonians. And ultimately, we find in the story of the Bible, he uses the Romans. All these nations were permitted by God to do evil against Israel, and God, yet God used their evil intent to accomplish his own good purposes. Does that sound strange to you? When I first learned about it, I thought it was strange. If it feels strange to you, it was also strange to the prophet Habakkuk. He was a prophet in the Old Testament who lived at the time that God was talking about the Babylonians and how he was going to use to judge the people of Israel. And this was Habakkuk's uh, reply to God in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? We're just completely puzzled. Why would you use a nation more wicked than us to punish us? And the conclusion of the book of Habakkuk is that God will indeed judge Babylon for their evil intent, but he will first use them to punish his own people. Judgment always begins in the house of the Lord. So the same understanding was also held by New Testament believers who prayed in the book of Acts regarding the patient, pagan nation of Rome. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28. Here they prayed, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So yes, what Herod did, what Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, did, and what the Jewish religious leaders did to Jesus was, in fact, evil. And yes, God will punish them for their evil actions. But also, yes, God used their evil intent to accomplish his good purposes. So are we all together there? Because we're going to take a next step. Because in the same way that God can use the evil intent of ungodly human forces for his purpose, he also uses the ungodly intents of spiritual forces, including the devil, for his own purposes. Now, Pastor Steve is teaching through the book of Job uh, Tuesday nights. If you've never been, it's at the Ethiopian Evangelical Church, which isn't far away from here. It's in Roxbury. And he just began teaching the book of Job uh, in December. You can listen to the message online. And he gives a great message on chapter one. And you may recall this story where there's this conversation between God and the devil, and, and they're talking about Job. And the devil says to God, 
Job only worships you because you put a hedge of protection around him. And Pastor Steve sort of uh, talked about that. Just, it's a fantastic message. You should totally listen to it. And he made the point that every single one of us have a hedge of protection around us. And if God were to remove that hedge of protection, every single one of us, probably me first, would fall into sin. And I would say this is one of the major differences in understanding between a mature and an immature believer. Both of them are capable of the most heinous of sins, but the mature believer knows it. The immature believer still thinks somehow they could resist, or they think somehow there are some sins they wouldn't fall into. And so Jesus, trying to break through this foolish and prideful mentality, teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's a prayer of humility. God, you know the weakness of my flesh. If you remove your hedge of protection around me, you know I will fail. So God allows Satan to tempt David to number Israel with the foreknowledge that David would give in to the temptation and sin. And both Satan and the devil are fully responsible for their free will decisions, the devil for his decision to tempt, and David's decision to give in to sin, and yet God remains perfectly just in judging them for the sin. And yet, the passage said that God's desire to bring judgment even predated the sin that David would commit. Why? Well, the answer appears to be that there had been backsliding in the hearts of the Israelites long before the actual act of sin was committed. We're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 up on the screen. It says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. All outward acts of sin are predated by a sinful desire that is in conflict with or competing with a desire to please God. Once you play with that sinful desire long enough in your mind and in your heart, you become enticed. And the only thing that at that point keeps you from committing that outward act of sin is the hedge of protection that God has placed around you. Think about the Christian fellowship, the community that you have, the roommates you may live with, or the spouse that you have, that worship song that gets stuck in your head, uh, the need to leave your house and get to work on time, fear of getting caught, fear of getting fired, fear of going to jail. All these hedges of protection the Lord puts around us. Now, the Apostle Paul explains that the key to victory over sin, and in particularly over a backsliding heart, we're going to read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says, I keep every thought under control in order to make it obey Christ. I, I know early on in my Christian walk, I was 
so focused on not doing certain acts of sin. And sometimes that could work for a little while, but the reality is you won't get very far in your spiritual progress as long as that's your entire focus. Here, the Apostle Paul says, no, you have to go to the thought. When you let the thoughts play in your mind, that's when you get in trouble. So if we choose not to control our thoughts or make them obedient to Christ, then desire conceives, and eventually it gives birth to the outward acts of sin. Have you ever been in a place in your heart where you desired a particular sin so much that you felt like you had no choice but to do it? The reason for that, and I've been there myself, the reason for this is because you allowed, I allowed, ungodly desires and thoughts enough time to mingle together that they conceived. And once that conception takes place, it's almost impossible to stop the outward act or the deliverance of sin. After a physical act of sin is birth, we again have an option. We can either repent by killing the sin, bringing our thoughts under control to obedience to Christ, or we can just continue the process of allowing desires and thoughts to wander freely in our minds and hearts until they conceive again and again, bringing forth more sin. And with time, those repeated sinful acts manifest in death. And God's willingness to remove the hedge of protection around David and allow Satan to move against him was actually the result of the Israelite attitudes and thoughts. Perhaps they said to themselves, now we have our king to save us. We no longer need to depend on God or even fear him. So I want to read 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, it's up on the screen, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Let me just leave that verse up on the screen. Let's pause and consider this verse in the light of all that's happened in the Israelites and David and possibly even your life as well. 1 John 5.18 characterizes the normal Christian life. This is what the normal Christian experience should look like. We do not continue in sin. It's not teaching that we become perfect, but we don't continue in patterns of sin, and God protects us from the evil one. So if your life looks different from this verse, you might still be a Christian, but your experience is not at all what should characterize the normal Christian life. And such a deviation from normal warrants a careful seeking after God for him to reveal to you why he has removed his hedge of protection in your life and given the devil such victory over your life. So as we enter into the year 2024, I'd like to present a challenge. Has there been a pattern of sin in your life in 2023 or perhaps even longer that follows the same cycle 
of sin, suffer, remorse, repent. Sin, suffer, remorse, repent. Sin, suffer, remorse, repent. Repeat, 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 repeat. I have certainly been in that place before in my life. I can tell you that for sure. And it's a place that's very discouraging. And it's also a place that's prone to very weird theologies to getting entertained. Some churches, they have little sessions after where they cast out the demon of lust, and the demon of addiction, and the demon of pornography, and the demon of this and that. And, you know, people leave hoping that things will be different and often find themselves committing the same sin with hours after leaving the church. Alternatively, sometimes I've been praying with people and they get so frustrated in their prayers that they begin to blame God because they prayed for God. God, remove this desire I have for alcohol. Remove this desire I have for weed or my desire to gossip or my desire for sex. Only to find that God didn't answer those prayers. So if you're stuck in a long habitual pattern of sin, is it possible that God has removed the protection promised in 1 John 5.18 that he would keep you from the evil one because you've angered him by backsliding in your heart. Consider Jesus' warning to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, I don't want anyone to be confused. This isn't referring to sort of the random sin, you know, like, you get up at 3 a.m. and you're trying to go to the bathroom and you're half awake trying to find the door and you stub your toe and a swear word comes out. You know, the Bible says we can just confess to the Lord, we can ask for forgiveness, and we can move forward for him. He's not threatening that particular type of problem with letting the devil loose on your life. The type of sin we're talking about here, and in particular in David's census, is a long pattern of disobedience. And in David's life, it clearly details it went on for nine months and 20 days. That's a long time for the same pattern of sin, the census going on, in spite of the rebukes, in spite of Joab and the commanders and the captains pleading with David, do not do this wicked thing. And David continued to rebel against those rebukes. Does this idea sound strange to you that God would give David over to Satan's devices? Or maybe that he might even give you over to Satan's devices? Well, consider what the Apostle Paul said when he challenged the pastors and elders at the church of Corinth to deal with a particular sinner who was unrepentant and even bragging about himself and his sin and the Christian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. It says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, my role in the church, I've actually had to do this a few times. Fortunately, I would say it's quite rare that we have to do such a thing. It only happens in sort of a certain circumstance where a person is really unrepentant and just rebellious even to the council, uh, to, to a particular sin after multiple warnings and rebukes. And the last person I had to do this with, I quoted this passage to them, and I told them, I said, you are no longer under the spiritual protection God grants to those under the authority of his church. And since he would no longer heed the counsel of the pastors, I told him I have no choice but to deliver you to Satan in hopes that the suffering you're about to endure might ultimately lead to the salvation of your spirit. And I told him I felt like the spirit just bore witness to me what was going to happen. And I told him what I thought was going to happen. And all those things, in fact, happen. It's very serious stuff here to be handed over to Satan. Well, if you're wondering, you know, there's degrees of how this may happen. You know, in the life of David, we learn that God removes this protection over one area of his life and a particular act of sin that led to the senses of the people. But in some cases, for example, the, the scenario where a person is so rebellious that they have to be disfellowshipped from a church, they're kind of a more complete deliverance to Satan. And there are, in fact, scenarios that are even slightly different. In fact, we see this scenario in the Apostle Paul's life where God will allow or grant the devil just enough grip to keep a believer humble. First Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, the Apostle Paul was declaring about the surpassing revelations that God had given him. And he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Wow. Even the Apostle Paul had a scenario where God permitted the devil some piece, some sliver to torment him. And yet, we notice what does the Apostle Paul do when his life doesn't match the normal Christian life that was described in 1 John 5, 18, where, the, the, uh, where our father keeps the evil one from touching us? It says he went to the Lord and repeatedly sought the Lord. That's what every believer should do. When your life doesn't match the normal Christian life, that should lead us to a place of seeking God when something isn't normal. And trust, God will answer you if you honestly seek him. What might it look like to seek God in this way in your own life? Maybe it's just a prayer. God, how have I angered you that you would allow the devil such freedom to tempt and conquer me in this area of sin in my life? David sought the Lord, and God answered him when he honestly sought him. So back to our passage, 2 Samuel chapter 24. 
We'll pick up in verses 10, 16. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' plague in your land? Now consider and see what the answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. God is merciful and gracious. But depending on the nature of sin and the position of the person who commits the sin, there is at times a judgment in store. And Gad, who was a prophet, declares to David the three options of judgment that David could choose for his sin. And David's response tells us a lot about how he sees God even in judgment Verse 14, he says, he tells Gad, I am in great distress. And then he says, please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. While David is in great distress over his judgment, who does he trust to be most merciful? The Lord. Yeah. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 30. We love this verse at Calvary Chapel in the city. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even in the midst of God's judgment, this verse is true. Compared to the judgment of man, the yoke of the Lord is always easy and his burden is always light. So back in verse 17 of chapter 24, 2 Samuel, it says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, 
So David, according to the word of Gad, went up to the Lord's, uh, uh, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed himself, bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And then Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. So here we meet Aruna, the Jebusite, who owns the threshing floor that the angel stood by. In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 20, we learn a little more about this guy, Aruna, who also goes by the name of Ornan, as he's called in, 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 uh, in this book. It says, now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. Now, I find this very interesting, that after the death of 70,000 men and just the awesomeness of an angel standing by my threshing floor, so awesome and frightening that his own sons ran and hid themselves, that Ornan just continues threshing the wheat. Now, there's not much commentary on this passage, so one can only speculate, but in my mind, I imagine Ornan singing a familiar song in Jerusalem at that time. It was actually a song that was written by David, and David had actually commissioned that this worship be brought forth day in and day out in Jerusalem. And, and perhaps he was singing this song as he was threshing his wheat. It's Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be too dark for you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is light to you. And David meets Ornan here. It's, it's as if two men are meeting each other who understand there's no point in hiding from the Lord. There's no place we can go. The only thing we can do is go to him and repent. I also find it interesting that the place David is sent to offer the sacrifice, which would stop the plague, is a threshing floor. You may recall that a threshing floor was the place that in the ancient agricultural communities they would thresh wheat and, uh, you know, wheat is kind of harvested. It's got all the stock and straw, and the grains are what's useful for bread. And they would usually go on top of a hill and throw the wheat up in the air, and the chaff, the straw, would kind of fly away because it was lighter. And they would just burn that. It was for no good purpose. And then the wheat would fall, and they would keep that. And John the Baptist, prophesying of Jesus, said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy uh, to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. So this threshing floor all throughout scripture is this place where the wheat, symbolizing the righteous, is separated from the chaff, representing the wicked. And one of the aspects, and I would say it's one of the characteristics aspects of a true follower of Christ, is the quality of time that they spend alone with the Lord. Sometimes around here you hear people call it your devotional time, or your quiet time, or your prayer time. And I submit to you that the place your devotional time should happen is actually at the threshing floor. Obviously, you can't go out and make a physical threshing floor. But essentially, what's happening in that time, if you're doing and being led by the Spirit, it is a place of threshing where you, like Ornan, are just taking your thoughts, your desires, your hopes, everything you love and hold dear, and you're throwing it up in the air to the Lord and saying, God, separate what is ordained by you from all the worthless chaff that my flesh imagines. Separate those things. And you, you can just be sitting, you drink your cup of coffee, right? Sitting in a chair reading the word, but in this posture, the Holy Spirit, if you genuinely come to the Lord this way, he will separate in your heart. He will separate the thoughts that are of the flesh and he will ordain and anoint the thoughts that are of him. John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would actually help in this. Sometimes we get focused on numbers, right? That's just our human nature. How many people got saved today? How many people got saved during this event? And so oftentimes it says the Lord is standing with his winnowing fan. He wants to know what kind of separation happened. How was the wicked separated from the righteous? And the quality of your devotion time, you'll know because God will have spoken to you, this thing is not of me. Separate it from yourself. Hold on to this. This is of me. The spirit through the word of God and through prayer will thresh your soul if you will submit yourself just as Ornan does here on the threshing floor. And so then verse 22 through 25, we'll finish this chapter. It says, now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look here are oxen for burnt sacrifices and threshing implements and the yokes of oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Aruna, or Ornan, however you prefer to call him, was a wonderful friend of David. 
When I think of his response to David, I think of Galatians chapter six, verses one and two. It says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, that would be another word for sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves lest you also be tempted, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And yet, the price of repentance can only be paid by the one who sinned. Aruna wants to pay it for David, but it just doesn't work that way. Now notice I didn't say the price of redemption. I said the price of repentance. The price of redemption would be paid years later. Interestingly, this threshing floor that David bought, and then later he actually purchased the the whole property for a larger sum of money, became the actual place that his son Solomon would build the temple on the threshing floor of Aruna. And we learn in Second Chronicles that that place was also the same Mount Moriah. And you may remember, for those of you who study the Old Testament, that was the mountain that Abraham ascended upon a thousand years earlier, where he took up Isaac, his one and only son, to sacrifice him at the word of the Lord. And what did Abraham prophesy on that hill? God himself will provide the sacrifice. And then a thousand years after David and Solomon's temple, Jesus enters that temple, God's one and only son, the sacrifice that God provided for us all. And a hill not far from there, Mount Calvary, he was nailed to a cross, punished for the sins that each of us have committed, and he fully paid the price of redemption. That price has already been paid and there's nothing you and I could ever add to it. And yet there remains the individual cost that every believer must pay as an act of faith in receiving that gift of redemption and it's the price of repentance. As the worship team can come up, the prayer couples can come up. I wanna ask each of you today as we enter 2024, what is the price that the Lord is calling you to pay to no longer be bound by sin? To no longer actually to be given over to Satan? Pastor Steve can't pay that price for you. I can't pay that price for you. The elders can't pay that price for you. We have to bear our own crosses and pay the price of repentance for our own sin. And each believer must pay that price of repentance themselves. So I wanna ask you, what does that price look like? What would that cost look like? Perhaps today the first step is just confessing the sin. Maybe it's just been hidden. Maybe you're in this cycle of sin, but nobody knows but you. Maybe the first price is just to get through the pride of confessing. I'm giving in, I'm giving over to this sin. Perhaps it's the next step. Perhaps it's accountability. Asking for someone who can hold you accountable to pray for you, to check in on you, to ask you the hard questions of how's it going. Maybe it's the price of receiving, asking for, 
and then submitting to spiritual counsel from the pastors or the elders over a particular sin that you're struggling with. Maybe it's, and I would say this is probably the most important one of those prices, just committing that daily unhindered time at the threshing floor with Jesus. Time in the word, time in prayer, seeking the Lord, letting the Holy Spirit thresh your soul and divide every thought which is of the flesh versus of the spirit. If you'd like to commit to that or any other thing that the Lord has stirred in your heart during this message, I'd like to ask you to just come up as we close and as we pray. I'm going to pray for us now. Father, I thank you for this word and I thank you for my own heart, Lord. God, just preparing this message, Lord, the the fear it put in my own soul, Lord, and I just confess how much I need it, Lord. God, I need the fear of the Lord. Your word says the fear of the Lord is clean. God, I need this word over my life as I enter into 2024. Just pray for the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel in the city. Anyone you're speaking to, Lord, they would have the courage to get up and pay the price and come up and receive prayer and begin that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.